This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Last month, New York Times columnist Brett Stevens wrote something pretty amazing. He wrote, for all of its virtues, buzz, spinoffs, and a Pulitzer Prize, the 1619 Project has failed. Now, the 1619 Project, of course, was that New York Times Magazine initiative published last year, which aimed to revise the date of America's true founding to the year 1619, the year the first African slaves arrived in Virginia. Even now, the Pointer Institute calls it a a phenomenal piece of journalism, but historians and other scholars didn't agree. In fact, academics with the National Association of Scholars called on the Pulitzer Prize Board to revoke the commentary award that it gave to project creator and chief essayist Nicole Hannah-Jones. Her essay, by the way, was titled, Our Democracy's Founding Ideals of Liberty and Equality Were False When They Were Written. Black Americans Fought to Make Them True. Without this struggle, America would have no democracy at all. But why was this initiative really launched in the first place. Was this really about correcting the historical record based upon new evidence and insight? Or was it an attack on America rooted in progressive ideology and more specifically, critical race theory? We're going to discuss it today with Dr. Peter Wood, who is president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book called 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. So good to have you with us, Dr. Wood. Welcome. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. I, I mentioned before, just a moment ago, your association objected to the awarding of this Pulitzer Prize to Nicole Hannah-Jones. What were your initial concerns when you first came in contact with the 1619 Project and began to read through it? What struck you initially about the problems with it? Well, it struck me immediately on the day that it was published, because I read the New York Times cover to cover, and this was a, an astonishing uh, counterfactual set of claims that our principles were false when they were written, but it went way beyond that. There were claims that I knew just because I study history that they weren't true. The idea that uh, slavery began in America when that English pirate ship brought uh, 20-some slaves to Virginia in August of 1619, not true. The American Revolution being fought by the, the patriots because they wanted to preserve the institution of slavery from the threat of British abolition? Not true. The idea that Lincoln fought the Civil War in order to exile blacks off the continent? Not true. <laughs> the idea that every advance in the political and social position of African Americans has been due solely to their own efforts? Not true. So I got done reading that 100-page document came into work the next day and called my staff together and said, we've got to do something. This is uh, a major assault by the nation's so-called newspaper of record. It's false. 
and we need to refute it. Well, right. And there was a whole team I know involved in the 1619 Project. Were there any scholars of note or historians of note who participated in it? Because mainly we hear about Nicole Hannah-Jones and we see some of these other names and say, I don't know who that is really. But who who was all involved in this? Well, there were 10 major essays and then a slew of uh, oh, uh, poetry, photographic essays, shorter comments by people of uh, no particular note. But I would say that there was at least one figure whose name I immediately recognized that the second essay in the, the magazine was by Matthew Desmond, who is a sociologist uh, and who is uh, someone who has been associated with a group of economically-minded sociologists who have been uh, uh, pushing the claim that the uh, American capitalism is a, they call it low-rent capitalism or low-road capitalism phrase, uh, is a system of exploitation that derives from the plantation system of the South. So uh, him I recognized, I don't think he's a household name by any means. Um, There's one other person who is closer to a household name. That's Brian Stevenson, whose uh, book titled Just Mercy has been uh, adopted and read in many places, including the church that I attend. They seem to think highly of uh, Stevenson as well. Uh, What he's on about is that the American judicial system, their criminal justice system, is root and branch uh, designed to oppress African Americans. So, uh, Those would be the names I'd pull out as being people who were uh, of some public standing. Right. So you're talking about a sociologist and an author there, some other names thrown in. But but by and large, is there anybody in that whole group that put together the 1619 Project who really are serious scholars of American history of note that would be, you know, well regarded by historians across the board? Uh, I would say no to that. A a bunch of them are professors, but being a professor these days doesn't mean that you're necessarily a scholar of note. It means you've gotten through the system. Yeah, right. So now when we're talking about the main premise here that they say 1619 is the date that we need to, you know, reframe American history and look at that as our nation's birth year, how do they make that claim? In other words, what is driving that? Simply the fact that you had African slaves brought to Jamestown, that in and of itself is the nation's birth year? I mean, how do they make that case? Well, they make it with rhetoric and sleight of hand. And pardon the history lesson here, but that's not what happened in August of 1619. Uh, A British bunch of pirates under a Dutch flag had intercepted a Spanish slave ship headed to Mexico, had captured the slaves, sold a bunch of them in Bermuda, then got caught in a storm and their badly uh, damaged vessel, short of provisions, made port at Jamestown, where they were willing to trade their slaves for food. That trade took place, but Jamestown did not have an idea of slavery or a legal status of slavery, so it instantly turned the slaves into indentured servants. They were put to work on various farms and in a few short years released. They intermarried with the white population. They became landowners. Some of them became quite prosperous. It was just not the beginning of slavery in the English colonies. 
Uh, and for that matter, slavery had already been on the continent for millennia. Native American tribes practiced it, enslaved each other, enslaved whites when they could. The Spanish had been bringing black slaves to Florida and Georgia for a hundred years previous to that. Slavery was thriving in the transatlantic slave trade, bringing millions of slaves to South America and the Caribbean. But the English colonies were basically innocent. They weren't involved in any of this, yeah. and they weren't involved in it in 1619. So it's a, it's a counterfactual claim on the part of the Times. It was made because they coveted that claim of 400 years. Yeah, that's ex- yes, exactly. Yeah. That's, that was what I was going to get to next, because I said, was it just convenient that they maybe went back in time and said, right now we want to be able to say what we want to say. Hey, let's see if we can find an anniversary to pin this on so we have an excuse to say it. Is that cynical to really imply that that was really driving some, at least some of the idea of doing this when they did it? I think that that's how modern journalism works, although the the name the the idea that slaves were brought to America in sixteen nineteen is known among scholars and has been for a very long time. Nicole Hannah Jones, the principal architect of the sixteen nineteen project, recalled reading when she was an undergraduate student about uh the slaves that were brought to Jamestown that year uh so there is a kind of loose knowledge that there was something to grab hold of, but it wasn't a, an event of major significance. It was happenstance. Uh, some African uh, captured in war in Angola uh, were among a very few who were lucky enough not to be shipped to the silver mines in Mexico where they would have been worked to death in a very short time. Hmm. Uh, They instead landed in Virginia, where before long, they were landowners and doing quite well. Yeah, which isn't quite emphasized as much as it ought to be. Dr. Peter Wood is with us. We'll come back. 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project is his book. We'll be coming back after this on Janet Meffer Today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now. And you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It is the case that the 1619 Project has had a lot of impact in the last year or so since it was written and printed in the New York Times Magazine. But a number of people who really do understand American history have fought back against it. And we are talking with one of them. Dr. Peter Wood is with us, president of the National Association of Scholars. His new book is called 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. So you have pointed out, Dr. Wood, that in fact, the larger aim in this 1619 project wasn't really to correct history. It was to change America's understanding of itself. Can you talk about that a little bit and and why you think that's so? Well, I I don't think it's hard to uh, come to that conclusion. All you need to do is read the words of the report itself. Their view is that American history has been mistaught in order to suppress the importance of uh, the subjugation of African-Americans and so on. But why they were doing this? Well, I think there's a political motive mixed in there. The the Mueller investigation of uh, President Trump for collusion with Vladimir Putin had gone up in smoke. There was nothing there. The Times in... uh, 2019 was casting around for another way to uh, demonize Trump, and they decided to go all in on the racial narrative, that he was a racial bigot and anyone who supported him was too. Uh, Thus, the uh, concept of implicit racism had to be marketed well. You had to convince people who didn't feel any racial animus at all that somehow their behavior and their lives were uh, riddled with a hidden bias against minorities and blacks especially. Um, Why this was all pursued? Well, I think that the uh, radical American left, uh, at least since the 1960s, has been searching for ways to delegitimate America. Uh, We have a, a transnational movement now of let's end borders, let's be citizens of the world, let's join up with every international body, but deride our own forms of government and civilian control. Um, So uh, this was, it it was slotted into a conceptual space that already existed of hatred towards America and derision towards our key institutions. Um, This became another path to the same end of uh, making America a place that Americans themselves felt ashamed of or feel ashamed of. So it's a shaming tactic, uh, astonishing to the degree that it has worked. When the riots broke out in many cities after uh, George Floyd 
died in police custody in Minneapolis. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones proudly declared those are the 1619 riots. She was drawing the connection between uh, civil unrest and anarchy uh, and her work in uh, trying to bring low the uh, esteem in which Americans hold their own laws and their public order. Goodness. Yeah, she had a bad reaction, as I understand it, to Brett Stevens' essay as well, didn't she? She wasn't too happy that he was trying to at least correct the record a little bit on the 1619 Project because they removed some of the language, didn't they, about the true founding and, and kind of manipulated some of the facts after, I shouldn't say facts, some of the writings after the fact. Yes, well... Ever since the thing was published, historians have been pointing out its errors, and the Times has just been batting them away, in many cases not even answering their letters. Uh, So for a long time, we thought, well, the Times is just going to stick to this story no matter what. In September, uh, the White House called a conference at the uh, National Archives. I was one of the speakers there, so I saw this firsthand. Uh, President Trump gave a speech in which he said that the uh, uh, White House was going to use whatever influence it could to stop the teaching of the 1619 curriculum, the spinoff of this project, in the nation's schools. Uh, Suddenly, the Times saw that what it had thought would be a weapon against Trump, Trump might be using as a weapon against them. (laughs) And they went back and started stealth editing what they'd said. They took out some of the more provocative phrasings. They did all this with no acknowledgement of error. It was hidden until uh, Phil Magnus, one of the historians I work with, uh, noticed it um, and pointed out how illegitimate this was. That's when I got together with 20-some historians and put up this petition to the Pulitzer Foundation to withdraw the prize they'd given to Nicole Hannah-Jones. I think what happened was that Brett Stevens read the petition, and although he was not about to give credit to the National Association of Scholars or the likes of people like me, he basically appropriated what we said, turned it into his own uh, uh, cry of pain in a 3,000-word essay laid it into Nicole Hannah-Jones and the other editors at the Times that had permitted this travesty. Jones, I don't know personally, but uh, I've been watching her career pretty closely. She seems to be a pretty thin-skinned woman, and she responded to this with uh, great anger and rallied uh, other members of the newsroom to denounce Stevens for what he did. Wow. Um, Stephen seems to have made himself right with the in-crowd again by contributing to the sort of I hate Donald Trump forum that they ran a week later. So he kept his job, remarkably enough, but uh, he he went off the reservation for a while. That's crazy. Do you have any lingering hopes that the Pulitzer board will do the right thing and revoke it? Because you have so many scholars, as you've said, you guys and others have come forward and said, you know, these claims that they're making are just not factual. I mean, doesn't the Pulitzer board look foolish if it continues to say this was award-winning journalism? Um, I think that the Pulitzer board does look foolish, but I don't really expect, and I never did expect, that they would withdraw the award. This is the same organization that gave uh, Durante, the man who helped cover up uh, Stalin's uh, famine in Ukraine, 
uh, a Pulitzer Prize, and they've they've given the prize to other people who history has judged unworthy. Uh, uh, the remarkable thing here is that the Pulitzer Prize continues to have any uh, sense of pride or legitimacy associated with it. Uh, they do what's politically expedient, apparently. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, on to the title of your book. You say 1620 is the starting point for our nation. That's the year the Mayflower Compact was signed. Why is that a preferable starting date, would you think, not only to 1619, but also to 1776? Why 1620? Well, I take nothing away from 1776. That's the official founding of the United States. But before the United States was founded as a nation, uh, there was the creation of the institutions and the culture that made the United States as a nation possible. And one can go back through a lot of history to various opening points. Christopher Columbus getting to the New World was one of those. They're important, too. But what struck me about 1620 and the Pilgrims was not only its proximity to 1619, but that uh, the signing of the Mayflower Compact is such a wonderfully concise conceptualization of what America would one day become. Um, I know that uh, this history isn't much taught anymore, but when the Mayflower blown off course came into the coastal waters of Massachusetts, the uh, people aboard, 102 of them, uh, were divided. There were those uh, religious dissidents that we call the pilgrims, and there were a lot of people who were just uh, would-be settlers in Virginia who suddenly saw themselves outside British law and declared to the others that, hey, we're free agents, we can do whatever we want to do. Uh, quarreling broke out, and on November 11th, uh, off the coast of Cape Cod, the ship was anchored. They came together and bargained out an agreement, which we call the Mayflower Compact. It's not even 200 words long, but what it says is that we're going to elect our own leaders, we're going to live under uh, laws of our own making, we're going to respect the differences among people and treat them equally, there will be no difference between the religious pilgrims and the secular people. Uh, it was a breathtaking new idea of self-government, self-government founded on principles of fairness and equality. Um, they did that in a few short words, and it's, it's not the August document that Jefferson wrote in 1776, but it is, for its time and place, a conceptual breakthrough. And it would have been nothing, of course, had they signed their names to the document and then gone to shore and started fighting with each other, but they, they didn't. They came to shore and actually created a community, one that lasted pretty much intact for 50 years, in which they upheld the principles of that document. So, you know, go back a year before in, in 1619, and you have a, a, a broken slave ship disgorging a bunch of people who became servants. Um, or go to what became Plymouth, Massachusetts, and you find the beginning of the New England town and a, a notion of self-government by free people. Um, that seems to me to be a, a difference worth pondering, and it's certainly something that uh, Americans should know about. From 
nearly the very beginning of English settlement in North America, Americans began to feel themselves a, a separate people who could take their destiny in their own hands. I would add that uh, one of the things which the uh, newly elected leaders of Plymouth did was reach a treaty with the Wampanoag Indians, uh, whose territory they were in, and that treaty went unbroken for another 50 years. Mm -hmm. So respect for Native peoples was part of the, the deal. Uh, they purchased the land that they landed on. They were willing to treat others uh, with the same principles of equality in which they treated themselves. It's significant for people to know that and to read the book. It's called 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project by Dr. Peter Wood. So good to talk to you, Dr. Wood. Thank you very, very much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My honor. Thank you. And we'll be back after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. With all this talk of president-elect Joe Biden, I'm reminded of Proverbs 18:17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. I guess those on the left who can actually read the book of Proverbs and maybe some of them who even believe they are Christians might take exception to that proverb when it comes to the press conference that was held yesterday by the Trump campaign legal team. And wow, what a press conference that was. All of the stuff that we have been dying to know, and it's probably not including everything that they know, is now open and obvious to the American public, and it was truly bombshell stuff. Sometimes people use the word bombshell when it really isn't a bombshell, but I think it's an appropriate use of the word here. And it was interesting to see some of the reaction from the never-Trump crowd. Eric Erickson, you might know that name, formerly of Red State, he's been around for a while, and he for some reason, popped up on my Twitter feed. I don't even know why. But I had said the Trump campaign conference, the press conference, gave me hope. Hope that there are still some truly great Americans who love this country enough to go to the mat to save it. And I said, I was grateful for Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and President Trump. And I said, Lord, please let justice be done. That is my goal. And of course, you have all these people come out. Eric Erickson says in response to what I said, he said, justice will absolutely be done, just not in the way some think. What does that mean? David French, who was big believer in the Russian collusion hoax, said of the press conference, this is absolutely nuts, just nuts. And yet millions believe it and believe Trump will prevail and they believe it with religious fervor. Why would you say that? You believe the Russian collusion hoax with religious fervor and I don't see you worrying about that. See, here's the thing. All of us should want justice. And I will say unequivocally, 
I don't like Joe Biden. I don't think he's fit to be president for a million reasons. But if enough Americans legally voted for him, he deserves to be president. And Kamala Harris deserves to be vice president. That's what's just because we have a system. And if it was conducted in an honorable way and they won, then I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with it, but I'm fine with it from a systematic standpoint that I believe in principles and the principles that apply to me ought to apply to the other side also. That's what makes America great is we are free and we are fair and we've had a sense of fairness and a sense of fair play for a long time until maybe now. So I want to get into some of this information that was revealed in this press conference going first to Rudy Giuliani. Listen to cut one. I guess the best way to describe this is when we began uh, our representation of the president, we, we certainly uh, were confronted with a very anomalous set of results. The president way ahead on election night, seven or 800,000 in Pennsylvania. Somehow he lost Pennsylvania. We have statisticians willing to testify that that's almost statistically impossible to have happened in the period of time that it happened. But of course, that's just speculation. As we started investigating both our investigations and the very um, patriotic and brave American citizens that have come forward are uh, extraordinary, extraordinary number of people, extraordinary number of witnesses. And what emerged very quickly is, this is not a singular voter fraud in one state. This pattern repeats itself in a number of states, almost exactly the same pattern, which um, to any experienced investigator, prosecutor, would suggest that there was a a plan from a centralized place to execute these various acts of voter fraud specifically focused on big cities and specifically focused on, as you would imagine, big cities controlled by Democrats and particularly focused on big cities that have a long history of corruption. Right. So he puts in a lot of elements there that are very significant. First, the fact that Donald Trump was hundreds of thousands of votes ahead in Pennsylvania. And then when things stopped down and the tallies started changing, it was statistically impossible, as he attested there, for the votes, that many votes to just vanish into thin air. This is now a pattern, they are saying, throughout a number of states. And what do you know? It's happening in big cities controlled by Democrats with histories of corruption. Now, he gives one example of voter fraud in Pennsylvania. Listen to cut two. So let's start with the specifics. Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, the margin of victory now for Biden, which is a not a victory, it's a fraud, is 69,140 votes. The reality is that we are now at a count of 682,770 ballots for which we have affidavits that there was no inspection of that ballot at the time that it was entered in the vote. It was a mail ballot. Mail ballots are particularly prone to fraud. We were warned about that by Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter and Secretary Baker in a report about a dozen years ago in which they said that mail balloting is particularly uh, susceptible of fraud, that we should very carefully consider ever doing it, and that it can be taken advantage of. Justice Souter warned us of the same thing in a comment in a election law case. And even the New York Times wrote articles about how uh, dangerous mail voting 
mail-in voting was. And um, this is the first time we ever did it en masse, and I think we proved that uh, all three are profits. It's not only susceptible to fraud, it is easily susceptible to fraud, particularly if you have a plan or scheme which sounds eerily similar to what Joe Biden told us a few days before the election, that he had the best voter fraud team in the world. Well, they were good. I don't know that they were that good because they made significant mistakes, like all crooks do, and we caught them. Well, here's something else that happened late yesterday. A Commonwealth Court judge in Pennsylvania ruled that 2,349 absentee ballots in Allegheny County were found in which the voters didn't date their declaration. And so they are now declared invalid. This is a reversal of a lower court ruling. So there's some progress being made there. One thing that I thought was quite interesting was Giuliani's bold pronouncement on where this is all heading. Listen to cut four. In the states that we have indicated in red, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Arizona, we more than double the number of votes needed to overturn the election in terms of provable illegal ballots. All you got to do to find out if I'm misleading you at all is to look at the lawsuits. Think about that for a moment. If that is the case, this is absolutely mind-blowing. They have more than double the number of votes that are needed to overturn the presidential election just by looking at illegal ballots that they can prove are illegal. I mean, the Democrats must be freaking out right now. And you can tell because they're all screaming conspiracy theory and sedition. And this is ridiculous. And Republicans are nuts. And nobody believes this. Really? Let's listen to something else Giuliani had to say. Cut three. And I'd like you to note that it's signed under penalties of perjury. We have a hundred more of these. I can't show them to you because those people don't want to be harassed. They don't want to be have their lives torn apart by the goons on the other side. We don't do that to them. They've done that to a lot of our people. They've done it for four years. And it's outrageous that it's tolerated. And it's tolerated because you condone it in the press. And you don't cover it. And you don't condemn it. And it shouldn't happen to a Republican or a Democrat. A lawyer shouldn't have to withdraw from a case because he's representing the president of the United States. There are many more affidavits here. I'd like to read them all to you, but I don't have the time. You should have had the time and energy to go look for them. That's your job. Like it's my job to defend the president and to represent the president. It's your job to read these things and not falsely report that there's no evidence. Do you know know how many affidavits we have in the Michigan case? 220 affidavits. They're not all public, but eight of them are. Four affiants here, those are people who give affidavits, report an incident that under any other circumstances would have been on the front page of all your newspapers if it didn't involve the hatred that you have, irrational pathological hatred that you have for the president. I'm so glad that Rudy Giuliani took the press to task over that because it is their job. It absolutely is their job to investigate this and to report the truth. You should squeegee the entire journalistic community with only few exceptions. Seriously, these people are useless. They're enemies of the state if they're not willing to report a big story. We're going to come back. There's more on Janet Mefford today.
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League, International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now. And you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. Com. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. All right, here's what we know from that Trump campaign press conference yesterday. Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis really dropped some bombs. Observers were allegedly prevented from watching mail-in ballots from being opened. This was one uh, part of this press conference, and Breitbart puts it together in a number of key points, nine key points. Allegedly, unequal application of the law in Democratic counties. Voters allegedly arrived at the polls to discover other people had voted for them. Election officials were allegedly told not to look for defects in ballots and to backdate ballots. We already knew about that. Ballots casting votes for Joe Biden and no other candidates were allegedly run several times through machines. In fact, Giuliani mentioned there were 60 witnesses in Michigan who would attest to ballots being produced quickly and counted twice or three times. There were absentee ballots accepted in Wisconsin, which were not applied for first. There were allegedly overvotes with some precincts allegedly recording more voters than residents, among other problems. There's nothing to see here. David French says there's nothing to see here. Anybody who is going along with this, believing it with religious fervor is absolutely nuts. Just nuts. Nuts. You're nuts if you believe this. It's, it's all a mirage, people. It's all a mirage. Well, let's go to Sidney Powell, because Sidney Powell had the biggest bombshells of all, in my opinion. All of the things that she had to say, for example, about Dominion and the Smartmatic software. This was quite a moment. I want you to listen to this. Cut five. The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, and the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well, not just Dominion, were created in Venezuela 
at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure he never lost an election after one constitutional referendum came out the way he did not want it to come out. We have one very strong witness who has explained how it all works. His affidavit is attached to the pleadings of Lynn Wood in the lawsuit he filed in Georgia. It is a stunning, detailed affidavit because he was with Hugo Chavez while the, he was being briefed on how it worked. He was with Hugo Chavez when he saw it operate to make sure the election came out his way. That was the express purpose for creating this software. He has seen it operate, and as soon as he saw the multiple states shut down the voting at the, on the night of the election, he knew the same thing was happening here, that that was what had gone on. That is really big stuff. Now, there are many people on the left who are screaming and yelling, oh, this is the ultimate conspiracy theory. Yeah, Hugo Chavez was responsible. Disprove it. Cindy Powell is not some greenhorn right out of law school who barely passed. She, she happens to be one of the most well-respected attorneys in the country. She's the one who helped exonerate uh, General Michael Flynn. And we talked about that with Sidney Powell on the show just a few weeks ago. She's got enormous respect in the legal community. This is not a woman who's going to stand up in front of America and risk her entire reputation by saying insane things that she can't prove. And she's been on these TV shows of late talking about the fact that Trump won in a landslide and she can prove it. So she's releasing the crack in here. Let's listen to some more of what Sidney Powell had to say, because she was talking about Trump votes being programmed to switch to Biden and how Trump. Trump's votes were in such high numbers that the whole system kind of fell apart. Listen to Cut 6. Now, the software itself was created with so many variables and so many back doors that can be hooked up to the Internet or a thumb drive stuck in it or whatever. But one of its most characteristic features is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. And that's what caused them to have to shut down in the states they shut down in. That's when they came in the back door with all the mail-in mail -in ballots many of which they had actually fabricated. Some were on pristine paper with identically matching uh, perfect circle dots for Mr. Biden. Others were shoved in in batches. They're always put in in a certain number of batches and people would rerun the same batch. This corresponds to our statistical evidence that shows incredible spikes in the vote counts at particular times. And that corresponds to eyewitness testimony of numerous people who have come forward and said they saw the ballots come in the back door at that time. Incredible. And where are the Dominion executives right now? Cut seven. Notably, the Dominion executives are nowhere to be found now. They are moving their offices overnight to different places. Their office in Toronto was shared with one of the Soros entities. One of the uh, leaders of the Dominion project in overall is Lord Malik Brown, Mr. Soros' number two person in the UK. 
and part of his organization. There are ties of the Dominion leadership to the Clinton Foundation and to other known politicians in this country. Just to give you a brief description of how this worked, I'm going to quote from a letter that was written, and I will uh, read that to make sure I get the quotes right. This person was objecting to the United States acquisition of Sequoia voting systems by Smartmatic, a foreign-owned company. I believe this transaction raises exactly the sort of foreign ownership issues that CFIUS is best positioned to examine for national security purposes. It's undisputed that Smartmatic is foreign-owned and it has acquired Sequoia. They keep changing the names as they go along. Different times when a problem comes up, they just create another corporation and call it a different name. But it was a voting machine company doing business in the United States. Sequoia voting machines were used to record over 125 million votes during the 2004 presidential election in the United States. Smartmatic now acknowledges that Antonio Mujica, a Venezuelan businessman, has controlling interest in Smartmatic, but the company has not revealed who all the Smartmatic owners are. According to the press, Smartmatic's owners are hidden through a web of offshore private entities, and that is, in fact, true. Wow. W- what do you even say to this? It's incredible. And talking about Soros, this Lord Malik Brown, Mr. Soros's number two person in the UK, is one of the leaders of the Dominion Project. Yeah, nothing to see here. David French says it's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Ties of the Dominion leadership to the Clinton Foundation and other known politicians in this country. There's nothing to see here, folks. You shouldn't be examining the evidence because that just makes you a tinfoil hat nut. David French thinks so. The left thinks so. The never Trumpers think so. And people who are in the know understand that you're just crazy. Or, or is it the ultimate gaslighting? These are not the same people who will come forward and defend somebody they don't like whose name begins with a T and ends with a P because they, for whatever reason, they just won't do it. This isn't about principle and fairness and evidence and facts. This is about ideology and staying in the club for these people. And this was the best moment I thought from Sidney Powell, cut eight. This is stunning, heartbreaking, infuriating, and the most unpatriotic acts I can even imagine for people in this country to have participated in, in any way, shape, or form. And I want the American public to know right now that we will not be intimidated. American patriots are fed up with the corruption from the local level to the highest level of our government and we are going to take this country back we are not going to be intimidated we are not going to back down we are going to clean this mess up now president trump won by a landslide we are going to prove it and we are going to reclaim the united states of america for the people who vote for freedom I was very touched when I listened to her say that, not only because of what she was saying, which it remains to be seen if all of this can be proven in court and much less, you know, win in court and see Trump actually win the election. I mean, this is I hope he does. I mean, I, I would I would love to see all of this be proven if it actually is and have justice for this country and have the will of the people established and and undergirded by by a court decision. Hopefully the Supreme Court will see what happens with this. But the point is, 
You have people who are willing to fight for this country and to get to the bottom of all of this corruption. And we know there's corruption. Every single person who knows anything at all about elections and has ever read a newspaper or a website about the status of voting in any of these blue cities understands there's a lot of corruption and there has been for a very, very long time. But this is this is beyond the pale of what we've ever seen happen before. So examine the evidence see what happens, read the affidavits, let the court process play out. But if all of this is true, then I do pray that Americans will get who they actually voted for, not who Soros decides should have won. Let's see what happens and keep on praying for this country. We're going to see you next time. Thanks so much for being with us here on the broadcast. We'll see you on the next Janet Meffer today.